The following presentation was recorded at the Center for Christian Study in Charlottesville, Virginia. All audio rights are reserved and protected by international copyright. No part of this presentation may be reproduced in any form without the written permission by University Christian Ministries, Incorporated. The lecturer holds publication rights to all material. For more information, contact the Center for Christian Study at 434-817-1050. Let's go ahead and begin, shall we? We only have 90 minutes to cover the topic of justification. In the uh, work of N.T. Wright, we've spent three weeks leading up to this grand climax. So three weeks learning more about the work of N.T. Wright than actually learning about justification. So in order to do justice to the topic and make sure you get your money's worth, we need to handle justification tonight. Okay, now let me ask you just once again, please confine your questions for the next hour and a half to brief clarifying questions. And then, um, as a result of a request, I, I think what I'll do is say at, at, eight, eight, at 8.30, any of you that want to go, that's fine, you can go. But I'll continue to take questions from others, more elaborated questions or critiques or whatever. And we'll talk for a little while longer at that point. So we'll try to stop as close to 8.30 as possible and have the main the main presentation done, but then we'll have a little time of discussion afterwards for those of you who would wish to stay and talk a little bit. Okay, just by way of review, we're on week four. First week we did the narrative substructure of Paul's theology. We'll do a little bit more of that today just by way of review along the way. We'll see, we'll see some of that again. The second week we did Adam, Israel, Servant, Christ. Does covenant theology get it right? and talked about the place of Israel in, um, in Reformed theology and also in Tom Wright's understanding of Pauline theology. Last week we talked about the imputed or perhaps better disputed righteousness of God. More on that in just a minute. And today we will spend most of our time talking about the importance of definition, righteousness, justification, faith, and works in Paul according to Tom Wright and otherwise. Just by way of review from last week, um, Tom Wright takes issue with the whole Protestant doctrine of imputation. You'll remember this is very important. In that whole Reformed way of understanding things, there are three imputations. The imputation of Adam's sin to us. So because Adam sinned, um, we also are guilty. His sin is imputed to us, is conveyed to us. Um, the second imputation is the imputation of our sin to Christ. That would be the, in the passive obedience of Christ. He dies on the cross for our sins, and so our sins are given to him. And then the third imputation would be the imputation of his righteousness or his obedience to us. That's the active obedience of Christ, which then is given to us. And traditionally, in, in Reformed theology, it's both the active and the passive obedience of Christ. It's his death on the cross and his obedience to the law during his life that forms the basis for our salvation. So in Reformed theology, you have to have both. It's, um, it's the merits of Christ by his obedience to the law. It's a sacrificial death on the cross. And both of those things are necessary in Reformed theology. Wright takes issue with the imputation of the obedience of Christ to us. Mainly because he believes it, well, exclusively because he believes it. It's simply not the way that Paul thought about it. And he doesn't really prefer imputation. He prefers 
incorporation. That is, the main category for Paul is the fact that we are in Christ. We, um, we, have by vert- by, we are identified with Christ, who is the new Israel, who is the new Adam. And what is true of him thus becomes true of us. So it's not really imputation. And, and, and one of the main ways that he gets at that is through taking issue with the way that righteousness of God typically is understood. Those passages in the, in, in the Pauline letters where it talks about the righteousness of God, that's not something that can be you know, a substance or a gas that can be passed across the courtroom, you know, belongs to God and can be given to us. Tom Wright makes the point again and again that the righteousness of God is simply his covenant faithfulness. He's a righteous judge, and you can't take the righteousness of the judge and pass it across the courtroom to the defendant. That's not the way the language works, according to Tom Wright. And so the real meaning of righteousness of God, and this, that's, that's a picture of a slide from last week, is simply God's covenant faithfulness. It's the, that aspect of his character because of which, despite Israel's infidelity and consequent banishment, God will remain true to the covenant with Abraham and rescue her nonetheless. So that's what righteousness of God is according to Tom Wright. And therefore, it, can't be, it simply can't be conveyed to someone else, which leads to his interpretation of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Again, by way of review, remember 2 Corinthians 5.21 down here, For our sake, God made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that would be the imputation of our sin to Christ on the uh, traditional understanding, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the traditional understanding, that would be the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And this becomes sort of the key proof text from Paul to show that he, he had both, uh, both aspects of the imputation in mind, the imputation of our sin to Christ. God made him to be sin who knew no sin, and then the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But what, what's Tom Wright's understanding of that? It's not imputation that Paul is talking about. Based on the larger context, context here, which is all about reconciliation, God reconciling us to himself through Christ and giving us the ministry of reconciliation, the righteousness of God is his covenant faithfulness. So we're to emulate God and show forth that covenant faithfulness to the world. So even as Christ and God, God was faithful to his covenant through Christ, who undertook the role of the suffering servant, and by his suffering allowed for the exaltation of all those who are in him, so also we should have a kind of redemptive suffering for the world. Not in the same way that Christ had it, but still, we lay down our lives for the sake of others. It's that whole Philippians 2 idea, that we follow in the pattern of Christ, we lay down our lives for the sake of others, so that others might be exalted. We, we, we ourselves are made poor so that others might be made rich. So that, us, so that us becoming the righteousness of God is not something about a transfer of righteousness from God or Christ to us, according to Tom Wright. It's simply about us embodying the very covenant faithfulness of God. And last week, as you'll know, I was very sympathetic to this understanding. I read a number of passages from... Isaiah, in which that's the way righteousness of God is oftentimes used in terms of the covenant faithfulness of God. So I think, I think Tom Wright has a point here. Certainly the, the main category in Paul is incorporation, the fact that we are in Christ, that the new people of God is being redefined around Jesus. He's the new Adam. He's the new Israel, especially for Tom Wright. He's the new Israel. And so if you want to find the true people of God, you look to those who are in Christ, those who have now identified themselves 
as the people of God through their identification with Christ. And then Tom Wright also denies that Philippians 3.9 is a clarification of what Paul means by the righteousness of God. In, in Philippians 3.9, I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that that, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And Tom Wright here admits that there is a righteousness that we get. It's a legal status. More on that in a minute. But this is not explanatory of what the phrase righteousness of God is in Paul. This is righteousness from God, which is quite different from righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is his righteousness as the judge. He's the judge. He's righteous as a judge. He keeps his promise. He vindicates the innocent. He condemns um, the wicked. That's the righteousness of God. The righteousness from God, according to Tom Wright, is that legal status that we have. Once, If you're a defendant, you've been declared righteous. That would be the righteousness from God. And you don't transfer one from one to the other. The righteousness of the ju- judge is proper to the judge. The righteousness of the defendant is proper to the defendant. Then last time we looked at Romans 3, 21 through 26. And I, we compared the NIV and the, the um, NRSV. And we noticed some really interesting things. And again, by way of review... As, as the more literal NRSV points out, the word there in the Greek, or the phrase there in the Greek is righteousness of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And N.T. Wright is completely appalled by the fact that the NIV translates that as righteousness from God. So, from From Tom Wright's perspective, the righteousness of God as the judge, as the one who keeps his covenant promises, has now been translated in a way that suggests that it's the imputed righteousness um, of God through Christ. And uh, according to Tom Wright, that would be a complete misrepresentation. And I tend to agree with him. That's important to note because there are a lot of, you know, we've sort of done the main lines for Tom Wright's understanding of Paul but it's, it's little redefinitions like this that are important if you really want to understand what he thinks. Righteousness of God, covenant faithfulness of the judge. Um, here's the other phrase. Faith in Jesus Christ. Literally in the Greek, that's the faith of Jesus Christ. That's verse 22 of, of Romans 3. And if you look at the NRSV, if you look down at the footnote, it, it, it makes it clear that it could be translated or through the faith of Jesus Christ. And actually, literally in the Greek, that's what it is. It's the faith of Jesus Christ. A good example in English would be this. If I said, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Well, does that mean our love for God has been given to us? It's been shed abroad in our hearts because we love God. My love of God, my loving God has been shed abroad in my hearts. Or does it mean God's love for me? The love of God. God's love has been shed abroad in my hearts. In other words... Is God, the, is God the subject of the love? God's love has been shed abroad in my heart, or my love of God has been given to me? Romans 5, right? So in other words, if you have a phrase like that, even in English it can be ambiguous. Who's doing the loving? And who's the object of the loving? Love of God would be a good example. The same is true in Greek for faith of Jesus Christ. Is it our faith in Jesus Christ, which most translations take? In RSV, in IV. Or is it the faith of Jesus Christ, which is just as possible? 
a translation of the Greek. And, of course, Tom Wright argues it is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So, the righteousness of God as a covenant judge has now been disclosed through the faithfulness or the obedience of Jesus. And you'll remember from the last couple of weeks, that faithfulness and that obedience is the obedience of the suffering servant. It's the obedience of the suffering servant. We looked at a number of passages last week, especially Philippians 2 and Romans 5, to show again, that's very plausible. Tom Wright has his finger on something here. When Jesus obeys, it's not the law he's obeying, it's the vocation of the suffering servant, which fulfills the covenant covenant purposes of Israel. That is, to die on behalf of the people and to bring, um, bring in the restoration as a result. And so Tom Wright argues that it's the righteousness of God revealed through faith and through the faithfulness in Jesus Christ. And that leads to Tom Wright's own translation of this passage, which really is a pretty fair summary of his understanding of Pauline theology. Now, quite apart from the law, this is Romans 3, 21 to 26. Now, quite apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, God's covenant justice... That would be the righteousness of God up there. Comes into operation through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, acting as the suffering servant, fulfilling that vocation, for the benefit of all who have faith. For there is no distinction. All sinned and fell short of God's glory, and by God's grace they are freely declared to be in the right, to be members of the covenant through the redemption which is found in the Messiah, Jesus. Which brings us to, yes, just the, the part right after the truth of Jesus Christ and the benefit of all who have faith. I'm just wondering if we might even say, I mean, much has been made of like the modern tendency to think of faith, of Christians even think of their own faith as sort of the substance that they have to gin up and having great faith. But instead, in, in this context, it's more a loyalty, like an allegiance type thing, because Jesus is the Lord. And is that, is that also what he perhaps is getting at here? Because to believe in Christ doesn't mean just the power of belief. What it means is to believe in a very specific vocation that he is fulfilling, which is this Davidic um, full-suffering servant. Yeah. And ultimately, faith is, um, is believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confessing with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. So it's believing that God has already begun this restoration in Jesus. And furthermore, I think the implication of that is that he will complete that in me. It's, 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 a, very, it's a very relevant sort of, of belief. It's, it, first of all, faith is transitive in, in the Christian understanding. It's not just some sort of I believe and whatever I believe happens to be true. It's belief in the promises of God as is its object, the promises of God, especially as fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ. Yeah. Okay, that brings us to now. And here we are in Romans 3, and that's about as far as we're going to get, I'm afraid. That brings us to the topic for today, which is the importance of definition. Justification, righteousness, faith, and works. Which is actually in this very passage in Romans 3. And you can see it right here. For by God's grace, they are freely declared to be in the right to be members of the covenant. And notice how that's generally, that's that's Wright's translation, but notice how that's generally translated. In the NIV and in the NRSV, they are justified. They are now justified. And this is Wright's paraphrase. So tonight we're talking about the definition of righteousness and justification. Well, here it is. 
This is in Wright's paraphrase, um, elaborative paraphrase of justification. Instead of just saying justification, he says, they are freely declared to be in the right to be members of the covenant. And that's what we need to talk about for the next little bit. That redefinition, he has lots of redefinitions, but that redefinition is absolutely crucial. The question is, what is in the right? Can I, um, can I answer that in just a minute? Because I think it'll be, it, it's, it's, it's in a law court context, but I, and it's sort of a British way of putting it, frankly. Okay. So, we're, but we'll get there. That's a great question, and it definitely needs to be answered. Tom Wright, in the course of discussing justification, and this is the most controversial aspect of his work, writes this in what St. Paul really said, which is sort of the introductory volume for all of this. Quoting Alistair McGrath, the doctrine of justification has come to develop a meaning quite independent of its biblical origins and concerns the means by which man's relationship to God is established. The church has chosen to subsume its discussion of the reconciliation of man to God under the aegis of justification, thereby giving the concept an emphasis quite absent from the New Testament. The doctrine of justification has come to bear a meaning within dogmatic theology which is quite independent of its Pauline origins, unquote. That's from Alistair McGrath. And then Wright comments, So far I basically agree. And I shall develop the detail of this from the Pauline end, which McGrath himself does not do. McGrath has this long book, which is the history of the doctrine of justification, and sees it growing and developing and essentially losing its moorings with its biblical roots, especially its Pauline roots. And Wright agrees with that. And then he goes on to develop it. Okay, what does justification really mean? When we say justification, what we mean is how somebody enters into a relationship with God and is reconciled with God. But what did Paul really mean, according to Tom Wright? And this is Tom Wright's response. Again, what St. Paul really said, page 117. What then does Paul mean when he uses the language of justification? And how is this related to the gospel? I shall now argue for a threefold position about justification language in Paul, corresponding closely to the threefold grid I offered in the previous chapter for understanding God's righteousness. So, the same grid that he used to understand that, that, that phrase, righteousness of God, he's now going to use to understand justification. And this is where we get to go back to the map. This is why we did the map at the very beginning. Because I want to plot this for you on, on this map. So let's go back to the map. Alright. Okay, you remember the map as it uh, stood and all, the, all my colors are completely washed out here. But um, the map is for, for Tom Wright... Paul's world is summed up in a story, and the storyline goes, the Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. Monotheism is the summary of what Creator God means. Election is, is the summary for what chose Israel means, and eschatology is the endpoint that is to be a blessing to the world. That's the basic story, which is then redefined. Um, in light of Paul's encounter with the crucified and resurrected Lord on the, Damas on the road to Damascus. So the storyline or the pattern of Paul's thought prior to his conversion is redefined after he meets the Lord Christ. And each one of those main categories then 
finds its redefinition. This is, this is what we did the first week, you'll remember. And it's down here. We've spent most of, the, most of the past three weeks talking about all of this. It's down here that we find on the map of Paul's theology, uh, Paul's theology according to Tom Wright, we find the righteousness of God and justification. And these are the three elements that he was talking about. Righteousness of God understood in light of covenant membership, law court, and eschatology. And again, see, righteousness of God is translated in this passage as God's covenant justice. And remember, it has to do with covenant membership, um, or has to do with the covenant in general. God is the one who makes promises, made promises to Abraham. He had chosen Israel in order that they might be a blessing to the world. So the nature of the promise is that Israel has been chosen to be a blessing to the world. And the righteousness of God is concerned to make sure that that happens, even despite the disobedience of Israel. So the covenantal context is absolutely crucial. God, as the covenant keeper, is righteous. That's what the righteousness of God is all about. And oftentimes it's the law court. It's a law court metaphor that tends to... um, Express that. God is the judge, and Israel is the defendant, which is going to be vindicated before the world. So all the pagan nations are bringing accusations and trying to defeat God's holy people, and God is the righteous judge, the keeper of His covenant and promises, will vindicate His people. So covenant is one category. The law court is the other major category, the, the other me- major metaphorical background for, for Tom Wright and Paul's theology. And eschatology is the other. When is it that God vindicates his people? Well, at the end. At the end of time. It's sort of like Daniel 7. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. It starts out with one nation, which is a beast, and gets progressively worse. But one day, God will vindicate his people. The Son of Man will be vindicated. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 being Israel itself. The Son of Man will be vindicated. And that will happen at the end. And you can't understand righteousness of God apart from this idea of a covenant in which God chooses Israel for a particular purpose. God is a righteous judge making sure that Israel is vindicated so that it can indeed be um, a blessing to the world and fulfill its proper purpose. And if that's true of righteousness of God, it's also true of justification. And those same three categories are important. Covenant, law court, eschatology. Let's unravel that a little bit. Now put that, you know, put that uh, chart up in the corner so it'll give us a little bit of room. All right, this is where we're on the chart. Righteousness of God and justification fit under Tom Wright's redefinition of election, redefinition of eschatology, and the three major metaphorical backgrounds. It's covenant, law court, Eschatology. Actually, law courts, the, the metaphor, and the others are, are simply Old Testament biblical datum. It's the covenant that you have to understand, the co- covenantal context that's key. And it's eschatology, looking forward to the promise of Israel being a blessing to the world. Let's talk a little bit about those. First, okay, now talking about covenant, this re- redefinition of election, it is covenant language. Not in the sense of that word made famous through some 16th and 17th century discussions. 
This is where you need to draw to mind um, the discussions we had a couple of weeks ago. Covenant theology, covenant of works, covenant of grace. He's saying, no, 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 I'm not talking about that kind of covenant. I'm talking about the kind of covenant that's in the first century Jewish sense. When Paul speaks of justification, he is operating within the whole world of Second Temple Judaism, which clung on to the covenant promises in the face of increasingly difficult political circumstances. So, justification is within that context. God, choosing Israel to be a blessing to the world, looks like it's not going to happen. Looks like Israel is failing because of her own disobedience. Looks like God is failing to keep His promises. How is it actually going to happen? And so, that's the context for justification and indeed the righteousness of God. Second, it is law court language. Functioning within the covenantal setting is a strong explanatory metaphor. Two things must be said about this. First, this metaphor is necessary for understanding what the covenant was all about. The covenant was there to put the world to rights. That's two rights. To deal with evil and to restore God's justice and order to the cosmos. That's that storyline we're talking about. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. The covenant was there to put the world to rights. Second, the law court language is never independent of the covenant setting. So their redemption, their vindication is always within the covenantal setting, always understood to be for the purpose of their being a blessing to the world. Their redemption would be seen as the great law court showdown, the great victory before the great judge, where God vindicates his people and ultimately somehow blesses the world. And in eschatology, we've done covenant, we've done law court, now eschatology, this justification would thus also, also be eschatological. Now, eschatological is the $10 word for end times, right? What happens at the end of history? What happens at the end of things? It would be the final fulfillment of Israel's long-cherished hope. But importantly, this event could also be anticipated under certain circumstances so that particular Jews and or groups of Jews could see themselves as the true Israel in advance of the day when everyone else would see them as well. All right. Meditate on this particular <laughs> paragraph because this is important. This, this, is, um, this is really the key to Tom Wright's understanding of justification. Justification, according to Tom Wright, is looking forward to that vindication of God, of his people at the end of time when they're proved to be right and those who oppose them are proved to be wrong. But this event could be anticipated under certain circumstances in the present. How could you tell that someone in the present was a member of the group that is actually going to be vindicated? How could you tell in the present who's going to be declared just or righteous on that final day? That's what we need to talk a little bit about. And here we go. Page 119 of what St. Paul really said. Those who adhered in the proper way to the ancestral covenant charter, the Torah, the law, were assured in the present that they were the people who would be vindicated in the future. So, we're not thinking about Christianity at the moment. We're thinking about Judaism. How did you know who was going to be a member of God's vindicated covenant people? Well, you looked around and said, well, that person is obeying the law, separating themselves from the Gentiles. Food laws, circumcision, Sabbath observance, and everything else. 
That would be the badge, that would be the mark that that person is a member of God's people. It's not scrupulous? Yeah, and, and, yeah, and the point was, the point, you know, wasn't that, according to Tom Wright, wasn't at all that they were trying to earn their salvation. It was simply a, a matter of, of sort of flagging the world and saying, this is who we are, we're God's people, we're set apart, and one day, although it hasn't happened yet, one day we will be, we'll be vindicated. Oh yeah, circumcision. The circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath would be the three main marks that really distinguish you then from the, from the Gentiles, because those, the, those were the walls that erected between Jews and Gentiles. Well, there were, all, there were all kinds of even internecine disputes among the Jews as to who had the right understanding of the law. And, and even, even Jesus' disputes with the Pharisees can be understood the, the same way. Who has the right understanding of what it means to be a, a proper member of the people of God? you got the Essenes or the people of Qumran, assuming that for the moment they're the same people, who are out there saying, we have a proper understanding of, of the law because our prophet has told us, the teacher has told us, what is the proper understanding? And the Pharisees, no you, no, you don't have the right understanding. We have the right understanding. We can define who it is. So, they all, so, so even within Israel, there were these competing models of what's the, what's the appropriate badge of covenant membership. There wasn't um, sort of unanimity on that by any stretch of the imagination. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the definition of true Israel. Come to me. Identify with me. Define yourselves by me. And that's the definition of true Israel. They're all talking about the Torah. That's right. Jesus is a little more radical than that. But yeah, basically they have different interpretations of the Torah. So all of them, that, thank you for that clarification, all of them would fit under this, this sort of umbrella. Those who adhered in the proper way, that proper way being understood in different ways, to the ancestral covenant chart of the Torah were assured in the present that they were the people who would be vindicated in the future. This scheme is clearest, I think, at Qumran, not least in the recently published scroll that goes by the name of 4QMMT. Justification in this setting, okay, perk up your ears. Justification in this setting, then, is not a matter of how someone enters the community of the true people of God. He's saying, okay, based on our understanding, even before the Christians were around, when you talked about justification, it wasn't how you became a member of the people of God, but of how you could tell who belongs to that community not least in the period of time before the eschatological event itself when the matter will become public knowledge. So it's not a matter of how you get saved. It's not a matter of how you become a member of the people of God. It's a matter of how you show yourself to be a member. Now, this goes back to what we've already seen here. Justification is a declaration of being members of the covenant. How do you declare yourself to be a member of the covenant? Well, I declare myself to be a member of the covenant by obeying the food laws and obeying Sabbath and, be, and you know, being circumcised. That doesn't save me, according to this understanding. That simply shows who I am. It would be like um, saying, you know, uh, how, do you, how can you tell that somebody has mumps well, you know, or measles? You know, and you look for little red dots. That's not the cause of, that's not the, cause of, the, of the condition. It's the evidence of it. It's the symptom of it. And so, what's the symptom? What's the evidence of the condition of being a member of God's people? Well, it would be, you know, obeying the law. 
That's not the cause. It's not legalism according to Tom Wright. It's simply that's how you declare yourself to be a member of this people. And justification by works would then simply be, I'm declaring myself to be righteous, that is to be a member of the covenant, by doing the works of the law. The works of the law understood as a symptom of the condition. That's probably the best way of thinking about it. It's symptomatic. Okay? All right. Um, This is huge. And that's why I'm going to give you another juicy quote. Justification in the first century, and I'm going to take issue a bit with this in just a minute. Justification in the first century was not about how someone might establish a relationship with God. That's clearly the way most of us have grown up understanding it. It was about God's eschatological definition, both past and future, of who was, in fact, a member of his people. There's that member of the people again. Members of the covenant, member of the people. Righteousness means member of the covenant, or the member of God's people, according to Tom Wright. So justification, which simply means to declare someone to be righteous, means that they're declared to be a member of God's people. In Sanders' terms, it was not so much about getting in, that is, getting in to the people of God, or indeed about staying in, as about how you could tell who was in. Again, in terms of our health uh, care profession analogy here, it's not so much how you, how you get the condition or how you stay in that condition as how you can tell that someone has the condition symptomatically. Well, remember, remember, remember. This is where this is where you have to sort of do this thing where you have to get inside Tom Wright's way of thinking about justification. It's not about someone being declared to be morally good. Okay, so so ju- remember, justification. The definition of justification is to declare to be righteous. But you have to remember, righteous means to be a member of God's covenant people. So justification on this understanding means to declare someone to be a member of God's people. And how is someone declared to be a member of God's people in the same way that you're declared to be um, to have measles or mumps by the evidence of it? You see, so we're so we're talking. This is this is important because when Tom Wright says that you're justified by faith now and justified by works at the final judgment, as indeed he does say, he does not mean by justification what we mean. If if, if he meant what and by we, I mean the vast majority of people who use that word. If he, if he meant what we meant by justification and said you're justified by works at the final judgment, well, clearly that would be complete legalism, Pelagianism. But remember, he's redefining justification. That's why a lot of the, a lot of the criticisms leveled against Tom Wright are unfair. They continue to work with their definition of justification and then understand everything he says in light of their own definition of justification when he has made a point to redefine it. So righteousness is membership in God's covenant people. Justification is the declaration of that membership. And the declaration is, alternatively, obeying the law or faith in Jesus Christ. But those things are symptoms of this condition of being a member of God's people. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, is, yeah, yeah, this is a great point. So we would say the fruits of the Spirit are the evidence that we're Christian, not the basis of our, of our salvation. But it's a necessary evidence. And in fact, others, um, you know, like, um, like James Dunn and James D.D. Dunn and others have, have actually said that basically we have a more Protestant understanding of Judaism. 
so that, so that Judaism was understood very much along Protestant lines. They weren't saved by doing these things any more than we think we're saved by doing good works. Those good works, whether it's the works of the law or whatever else it may be, is simply an obedience to God flows out of a prior covenant membership, flows out of God's grace. And so instead of having this huge contrast between legalism and then Christianity in, in, in the way that we understand it and grace, you would say that there's a lot of continuity there. Both of them had an emphasis on God's grace. Both of them had an emphasis on the need to be in the members of God's people. The primary disagreement is what is the appropriate badge of covenant membership? What's the, what's the appropriate symptom? Is it little red dots or is it something else? And, or is it the works of the law or is it faith in Jesus Christ? What's the marker of God's people, the, the proper symptom? Yeah, it's confession of outward and visible signs. It's the confession of Jesus Christ, um, you know, for Christians or, um, or for <coughs> Jews. It would be the works of the law. And, of course, this then becomes the issue. It's, it's, it's an ecclesiological issue. The contrast between faith and works is not a contrast between alternative means of salvation. It's a contrast in alternative badges of identification. How do you identify the people of God? You identify the people of God by those who are circumcised, observe the Sabbath, uh, observe food laws, and so forth? Or do you identify the people of God as those who simply confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord? That's the difference. And, and for someone like Tom Wright, that's what the faith works contrast is all about. It's an ecclesiological contrast. That is, who's a member of the church, the ecclesia? Not a soteriological contrast, a matter of salvation, how you get saved. And that's the huge shift that you can see. And that's what he says here. In standard Christian theological language, it wasn't so much about soteriology, meaning salvation, as about ecclesiology, meaning membership in the church. Not so much about salvation as about the church. He just um, uh, explains himself there. So, that's, that's, the big, that's the big shift here. Yeah. Oh, just one more question on that. Because uh, I'm concerned about the outward and visible signs and intentionality. Uh, I mean, that's something that I can't, I can't judge. God can, is that why it's eschatological and it's to the end? Because God can judge the intention of the heart. We can observe signs and say, what's life? Exactly. So, this is how in the future someone declares themselves or is declared to be a member of God's covenant people. But ultimately, that's only an anticipation of the final judgment when God will make clear. And, and clearly, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between this present justification, whether by works or by faith, and who actually gets vindicated on, on that final day. That's right. There's, 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 not a, there's, some, there's a lot of overlap, we trust. But it's not, not a one-to-one correspondence. Yeah. The eschatological element is there the whole way. And it keeps it, it's in keeping with the theme of Christ being the first fruits, I suppose. I mean, he, he, he is the eschatologist. Well, yeah, but, yeah but, but, but wait on that because remember, Tom Wright is seeing the Christian understanding of justification very much in continuity with the Jewish understanding prior to Christ. So, and I'm going to say something more about that at the end. Um, so... Yes, it's an anticipation of God's final vindication. I, I, but let me, let, me, let me get to that because that's a really perceptive comment. But I need to pr- uh, prepare some more ground. All right, keep that in mind. We'll, we'll continue to discuss that. All right. Already we can see that this brief study of the Jewish meaning of justification emphasizes two points I made in the last chapter. This is what St. Paul really said, page 119. First, 
within the law court setting, the righteousness which someone has when the court has found in their favor is not a moral quality which they bring into court with them. It is the legal status which they carry out of court with them. Okay? So, according to Tom Wright, now this is very important. According to Tom Wright, righteousness is a legal status. The judge declares you to be righteous. That's a legal status that you get as a result of uh, going to court. He says, you're righteous, and as a result, I have that designation. Within a, covenant, within a covenantal context, that would mean I'm a member of God's people. But it's not a moral quality, according to Tom Wright. It's a legal status. More, much more on that in a minute. Second, we saw that this legal status, the righteousness of the person who has won the case, is not to be confused with the judge's righteousness. And there again, he's going back to that point which we made strongly last week. You can't have a righteousness of the judge who's adjudicating the matter transferred to the defendant. That doesn't make sense in a law court context. Okay, to summarize... Justification is about God's eschatological definition, both present and future, of who was in fact, and you can probably complete this for me. It's his definition of who was in fact what? Saved? A member of his people. And you'll notice what I've done here. I've tried to line it up. So this is under the eschatology part, and this is under the covenant membership part. Again, Tom Wright is still operating within those categories. He keeps coming back to justification understood in light of covenant membership, eschatology, both mediated through a law court metaphor. And so in order to make that clear, okay, here's the color coding. Everything in blue has to do with election or covenant membership. Everything in green has to do with eschatology because those are the categories he's dealing with. And then the law court, which is on this screen, the deeper, interesting, this is actually supposed to be yellow. The eschatology is yellow on everything except this particular video projector. And uh, law court is green. Let's see how this plays out. Okay, to reiterate, righteousness is not a moral quality which... The defendant brings into court with uh, him or herself. It is the legal status they carry out of court with them. Okay, that's, that's the one thing we'll need to think about. Or, to put it otherwise, justification is a declaration of covenant membership, not the imputation of a moral status. And whether you agree or disagree with Tom Wright, you have to at least understand him in the terms that he's speaking in. I cannot tell you... How many people will criticize Tom Wright unfairly? They've, they've, they've written books, they've written articles, and they continue to think in their own terms and criticize him on the basis of their own use of the language without granting him his own usage. Now, you can agree or disagree with his usage, but at least judge him in light of his own usage. And I think it's fair to say that Tom Wright agrees with all of the, and, and strongly affirms, all of the basic fundamentals of the faith. That's why I think that some of the condemnations, many of them, are simply much, much too strong, whether you agree or you disagree. For him, justification is a declaration of covenant membership, not the imputation of a moral status, such as is typically understood. And then, to sum up on the other side... Well, 
He's ta- well, yes, he is talking about in the context of the study of Paul, but he's, but he's basing that on the way in which righteousness was used in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to look at in a minute. Does the evidence bear him out? That when Jews in Paul's time said righteous or justification, they meant covenant membership. Now, I mean, Paul obviously could redefine things, but, but righteousness, um, both... You know, there's lots of uses of the word righteousness in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. So we'll need to see if the evidence bears Tom right out on this particular understanding of righteousness. But it's, it's, a, little, it's a little broader than just the way in which Paul uses the word. On the other side, on eschatology, the light or green on this screen, but it should be yellow. The, um, it's a beautiful yellow, really is, on my, on my screen. Um, the eschatological vindication of God's people could be anticipated under certain circumstances, whether through adherence to the Torah or through faith in Jesus Christ. So how do, what's the proper symptom of being a member of God's people? So for Tom Wright and a lot of other people, that's the main debate. When you have this faith works contrast in Paul, the main debate is, the only debate is, how do you know who's a member of God's people? And, and, and indeed, that was, a, that was the huge topic. That was the huge issue in the first century. I mean, to give this, this perspective its justice, to give it its due, the main issue, you know, right after the resurrection of Christ was, okay, who's a member of God's people and how do you know? Do you still have to be circumcised? Do you still have to observe the Sabbath? Do you still have to observe the food laws? Or is it simply a declaration of faith in Jesus Christ that's enough to identify you as a member of God's people? So it's clearly not a huge issue for us, but it was the issue um, in, in the early decades of uh, Christianity. Yes. Before you get rid of the screen, righteousness is not a moral quality which may bring into court. Does Reformed theology say that it is a righteousness? That it is a moral quality? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the so righteousness is, is understood to be a moral quality. Not apart from Christ, not apart from right. Well, again, I'm going I'm, I'm going to discuss this. So you're anticipating um, a, a line of thought that we definitely need to delve into. So, so if you, your sense of dissatisfaction at this point is, is well grounded, because it needs to be, it needs to be. Uh, oh. So the Pharisee, the publican, the Pharisee says, "I thank you, Lord, but I'm not as this man." He's thinking in terms of this right here. He's not thinking in terms of any kind of innate righteousness in itself or achieved righteousness. He's thinking of this concept. Well, yes, according to Tom Wright. But again, let me just tell you where I'm heading with this. At the moment, I'm just going to sort of uh, try to exposit what Tom Wright believes about it, and then I'm going to show you the other side. So that's the question. I mean, hopefully by the end of the evening you'll make a, a decision for yourself or at least have some resources to make a decision for yourself. You know, this, the title of this is a matter of definition. What is the proper definition of righteousness? Is it covenant membership or is it a moral quality? Um, more on that in a minute. Okay, moving right along. Because we really, this is one of those things that you can't really understand the part unless you have the whole. So I'm trying to give, give you the pieces, but it's not, I don't think it's really going to all come together until you sort of see the big picture, and we're, we're getting there. Um, bottom right box there. Future justification may be anticipated in the present by a badge of covenant membership. And Tom Wright understands this to have been simply conventional. The, the, the debate wasn't whether or not you needed to um, show that you were a member of God's people and anticipate the final judgment. The question is how you would do that. Would you show that you remember God's people by obeying the Torah, especially circumcision and Sabbath and the food laws? 
or would you do it simply by a declaration of faith in the Messiah, Jesus? That's Tom Wright's perspective. Now let me um, back up and give you some of my um, perspective on that. All right, notice the little box that I've drawn here, and my little graphics stop. Counterpoint. All right, this is, this is where, you, up until this point, um, I have really emphasized the ways in which we can learn from Tom Wright. I, I find that people, when they disagree with Tom Wright, tend to do the baby in the bathwater sort of thing. If they don't agree with one aspect, they, they, they either accept him hook, line, and sinker, they reject him hook, line, and sinker, and I think that's really a mistaken approach. There's much that we can learn from Tom Wright. He is, in my view, a great gift to the church. I think we should pray that God gives him a long life. There, there are many, many things that we can learn from him. That being said, on this particular issue, I continue to have my reservations and, and still and disagree with him. So let me, let me give you, I think, what is a good counter-perspective on this. This is largely taken from um, a book by Stephen Westerholm, which the book itself, do I have it here? The book itself, it's, it's called Perspectives Old and New on Paul, the Lutheran Paul and His Critics. The, price of the book is worth its price simply for the little section on definition of righteousness in the back. It's a very thick book. For those ten pages or so, buy the book. Well, well worth it. This is a very good book. He's a good writer. He's funny. He's amusing to read and makes wonderful points. So, in that sense, he's a lot like Tom Wright. Okay, let's talk about justification. Tom Wright's assertion that justification is a declaration of covenant membership not the imputation of a moral status. So for, for Tom Wright, righteousness is all about covenant membership. And I want to dispute actually both sides of that. Uh, first of all, wait a minute, don't want to do that. Come back. Yeah, there we go. Okay. I'm going to assert, and I'm going to give some evidence for this, two things. First of all, with respect to the covenant, that righteousness is not solely or even primarily a covenantal category. And, I, and, and I'm going to show, show you why this is important. Rather, righteousness is a creation category that includes but transcends covenantal faithfulness. That actually is an important point, and I think, it, I think the evidence bears it out. The other thing is with respect to membership... Righteousness is not simply a legal status or membership in a group. It is a moral quality based on one's doing the good and avoiding the evil. Okay, now, at this point, I'm actually in direct contradiction of Tom Wright because he says justification is a declaration of covenant membership and righteousness then would be the covenant membership. And I'm saying righteousness is not solely limited to the covenant, nor is it a matter of membership. The God, you know, the judge declaring you to be righteous and thereby making you the member of that group. Let me, ta let me just show you the evidence for, for both of these points as a way of, I think, correcting what I think is, um, is a mistaken emphasis in Tom Wright. And again, based on, I think, the good work of Stephen Westerholm. Let's start with this. That's supposed to be a bubble around this uh, box. Righteousness is not simply a legal status or membership in a group. It is a moral quality based on one's doing the good and avoiding the evil. Let's look at some examples. 
And this is what Stephen Westerholm calls ordinary righteousness, which is best seen in contrast to um, sin. And he gives a couple of examples. Uh, Romans 3.9, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That doesn't make a lot of sense if you understand righteous to be covenant membership. Because then he would be saying there's no one who's a covenant member or no one who's a member of the covenant. The contrast here is between righteousness as a moral category and sin as a moral category. The sin is the people who do all the bad stuff. And so you get this contrast then between sin on the one hand, clearly understood as a moral category because it's cataloged in Romans 3, and then righteous. Ordinary righteousness, we'll talk about extraordinary righteousness in a little bit, which is, um, which is its opposite. Let's look at another example. Romans 5, 7, and 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. The, uh, the parallel is instructive here. Righteous man, good man. Again, good probably isn't just a, a statement of covenant membership. It has to do with what you do. Yeah. Yep, it's all in the, in the Dikaius word group. And the problem with English is that there's no way that we can clearly express that because we have different words. We have righteous and justify. But in Greek, it's all Dikaius. Dikaiosune and so forth. So, um, I mean, Stephen Westerholm gets around it by saying, Righteous is to chaos, to justify is to chaosify. <laughs> he, just, he, just goes, he just makes up new words and says, we've got to show that they're all related. Justify means to, to, make, to, to righteous somebody. So, it's, it's very awkward in English. But going back to what I was saying, here it gets your parallelism between righteous and good, clearly more than covenant um, membership. It has to do with a moral category here. And... Again, there's a contrast between righteousness and sinners. Let's look at another one. Romans 6:18 through 19. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Clearly a moral category at this point. Um, ever-increasing. So you're doing more and more wrong stuff. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Again, contrast between righteousness apparently as a moral category and sin and impurity and ever-increasing wickedness clearly as moral categories. And last, um, 1 Corinthians 4, 4, there are lots of examples, but just these is... Main, main examples. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Literally, that does not make me righteous or justify me. It is the Lord who judges me. My conscience is clear that of, with respect to things that I've done. I cannot, as far as I know, I haven't done anything wrong. So again, the justification here is declaring someone to be righteous on the basis of what they have or haven't done. Okay, this is, this is Stephen Westerholm's summary of the point... The definition of, of righteousness, here's his, his, here's his summary. In brief and in the broadest terms, and note how this conflicts with Tom Wright's definition of righteousness. In brief and in the broadest terms then, ordinary righteousness, we'll get to extraordinary in a minute, 
as contrasted with sin, must be what one ought to do. The righteous, in the ordinary way, is the one who does righteousness. That is what you ought to do. And to justify is to declare to be righteous or to be innocent of wrongdoing. In other words, you haven't done anything wrong. You've done what you ought to do, which seem like common sense definitions. So he's simply saying that based on the contrast, even in Paul, between sin and righteousness, righteousness is a moral quality. It's not simply covenant membership. It is also a moral quality. And here's the example from the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8.32, when Solomon is praying in the Greek, literally translated it reads, Then hear thou in heaven and act and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked. Now this is God being invoked to act as a good judge. Condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. According to his righteousness. Justifying or declaring to be righteous the one who is righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Now note there that that's righteousness that he brings into court. It's not the judge says you are now righteous and you didn't have that status before. The whole point is that a good judge recognizes the status that you brought into court with you. You did what was right and not what was wrong, and the good judge is the one who declares you righteous on the basis of your prior righteousness. It's a moral quality. So this this is a, this is a very important text, I think. This is this is an example that Stephen Westerholm uses because, and it's a beautiful example because it has justify the verb, it has righteous. Um, the noun here, or uh, adjective being used as a noun, substantized, and um, uses the noun according to his righteousness. We need only note that righteousness, the kaiosune, here is not simply what one ought to do, but also what one has when one has done it. It's not just a member, of, according to Westerholm, it's not just a matter of covenant membership, it's a moral quality. It's you ought to do something, and then you're righteous because you've done it, and the good judge is the one who says, you're righteous when you're righteous, and you're wicked when you're wicked. It's a bad judge who does the opposite. But the judge doesn't give you that quality. He simply recognizes the quality which you already have. There's, right, there's half a dozen psalms that, that take that for granted. I mean, that explicitly say exactly what you just said. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, so examples can be multiplied, but what I'm trying to show you is, is it's not that righteousness has nothing to do with covenant membership. Clearly it does. It's just that to restrict righteousness to covenant membership is, is to unduly restrict it. That it it's actually broader than that. So it is the moral quality one brings into court. Tom Wright says righteousness is not a moral quality which they bring into court with them. It is the legal status that they carry out of court with them um, I think a passage like 1 Kings 8.32, based on Westerholm's work, uh, actually is the moral quality one brings into court. And it's the good judge, in this case God, who recognizes your, that moral quality because you're being declared righteous according to your righteousness. Now, that's so far we've just dealt with this side. That is, Wright's assertion that righteousness is not simply a legal status, or, or rather my assertion that righteousness is not simply a legal status or membership in a group, it is a moral quality based on one's doing the good and avoiding the evil. Now we need to switch over and talk about the covenantal side of things. And hopefully the picture will start coming together. And again, 
Here we're going to say, many examples here, here we're going to say righteousness is not simply covenantal faithfulness. It's a lot bigger than the covenant. And there are lots of examples of that in the Old Testament. Let's look at a few. All right, Proverbs. What does righteousness mean in Proverbs? Is it, is it have to do with covenant membership? The contrast between the tzaddik, that is, the righteous, and the wicked, together with that between the wise and fools, is perhaps the central motif of the book of Proverbs. No book in the Bible uses the language of righteousness with anything approaching comparable frequency. Yet the framework of Proverbs is emphatically not covenantal. In other words, it's not within the framework of the covenant with Abraham or the Mosaic covenant. It never mentions the word covenant except once in, um, with reference to marriage. It's not a covenantal framework, and that's like most wisdom literature. Most wisdom literature is not operating within a covenantal framework. It's operating within a creation framework. The way God deals with all human beings, not those simply those in the covenant, uh, one of Israel's covenants. Since God, by wisdom, created the heavens and the earth, it behooves human beings to gain wisdom and to govern their lives accordingly, so showing themselves wise and righteous if they would prosper. For a significant strand of Hebrew literature then, that is wisdom literature, what human beings, Israel is not specified, ought and ought not to do is discussed using the language of righteousness in a completely non-covenantal framework. Well, clearly that's problematic if you want to say that righteousness is covenant membership. You've got an entire book which is based on this contrast between righteousness and, and wicked, wickedness, and it's, it's not within a covenantal framework. Sodom and Gomorrah, another example. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Genesis 18, 22-26. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Now, this is clearly a lot more than Lot and his family. So these are not people who are within the Abrahamic covenant. So, so he's thinking about non-covenantal righteous people. That's, that's the idea. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Abraham assuming that there are people who do the right thing, even if they're not members of the covenant, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And again, here's the context. It's not specifically um, the covenant. It's or at least not one of the specified covenants with Israel. It's, it's the creation context. God is the judge of the whole earth which is larger than the covenant with uh, Israel. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city. Again, notice righteousness is not a legal status which God gives to those people. He's actually looking for them and then recognizing their righteousness. And then on the basis of the righteousness, that moral quality which he recognizes, he would then declare them righteous. In fact, there weren't any. But that's the idea. He's searching for people who have morally done the good and avoided the evil. And it's conceivable that he would find them outside the covenant. Are you, you're still with uh, what you call uh, ordinary righteousness? Ordinary righteousness. We're talking about ordinary righteousness uh, apart, from the, apart from the Christ event. How is righteousness ordinarily used? Well, it's used in a way that um, A is... Um, 
not simply a matter of uh, a legal status. It's a matter of what you do, right or wrong. And it's a lot bigger than the covenant. Those are the two points that I'm making here. Are all these Uh, yeah, it, um, well, it would be Tzadik in the, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew and then Dikaios in the, in the Septuagint. So all of these would be Dikaios and the Septuagint in the, in the Greek um, translation. Let's look at another example. Again, just trying to make the point here as clearly as possible. This is with um, Abimelech. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. Abimelech clearly not in any covenant. And said to him, you are about to die because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy a righteous people? Did he, did, not, did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this in the integrity of my heart and the righteousness of my hand. I did the right thing in this case. I'm not a perfect person, but I did the right thing in this case. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. So God now affirms his righteousness, justifies him in this case, not simply recognizes what he's done or hasn't done. Furthermore, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. There's that contrast between sinning and righteousness and is clearly a moral act or immoral as the case might have been. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Again, it seems hard to say that righteousness is clearly is limited to the covenant. Here it's God himself saying that Abimelech has been righteous, and that does not mean that he's been a member of the covenant in this case. Well, that's true, but it's still ordinary. When I say ordinary righteousness, I mean, I simply mean that it's based on what he has done or hasn't done. It's based on doing, not just, it's not just um, symptomatic. It is actually the basis for, um, for a particular moral status. Um, Job and Noah, again, no reason to think that either, well, neither one was certainly a member of the um, Abrahamic covenant. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And in the uh, Septuagint, Job is um, true, blameless, righteous, and godly, abstaining from everything evil. Again, clearly, righteous, among other things, means to abstain from everything evil. So, perhaps at the risk of overkill, maybe it needs to be overkilled. Righteousness is a moral category in the ordinary use of the term. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They're not doing that by their lack of covenant membership. They're doing it by their wicked deeds, as is clear from the catalog of bad things that they do, which follows. Okay. So, so I think here that his, his definition of righteousness is actually um, um, a, a misguided redefinition of righteousness. And it's better to stick with the ordinary meaning, which seems to be evidenced in these various passages. <clears throat> and this is Stephen Westerholm's comment then on the relationship between this righteousness that we see in the Old Testament and the um, Mosaic Law. The Sinaitic Covenant... So that would be the Mosaic Law. How is righteousness now related to the Torah? May thus be said to provide its members with a framework within which righteousness is to be pursued and where unambiguous guidance is given on how to attain it. So everybody has the responsibility in the world to be righteous. You're born into a world, um, not of your own making. God himself has placed you here with certain responsibilities. You're righteous if you live up to those responsibilities. You're unrighteous if you don't. 
Problem is, you may not have a clear sense of what those things are. We, we all have a clear enough sense, according to Romans 1, to be, Romans 1, to be condemned if we don't do it. But if you want clear, unambiguous guidance as to how to be righteous, there's the law. Still, not even Israelites within the covenant are righteous without doing righteousness. And though what Israelites ought to do, and hence what makes them righteous, is to keep the laws of the covenant. Righteousness does not mean covenant faithfulness. Otherwise, as noted above, it could not be expected of Gentiles. And it clearly is expected of Gentiles. So that's the, that's the large, it's larger than the covenant. It can't mean covenant faithfulness because it's bigger than the covenant. It's expected of Gentiles as well as of Jews. And here, I think, is the key point. In short, righteousness, by definition, represents what sinners, as sinners, lack and need. It is not, by definition, that from which Gentiles, as Gentiles, are excluded. And here's the key. Is righteousness about ecclesiology, about the definition of God's people, and the member of God's people are righteous simply because they're members of God's people, and those on the outside to be justified means now that they're being declared to be members of God's people. So is it dealing with a boundary issue? Who's a member of God's people? Or is it dealing with something far deeper? Is it dealing with the reality of sin among Jews or Gentiles alike? And I think Westerholm makes the case that righteousness is, um, represents what sinners as sinners lack and need not that from which Gentiles, as Gentiles, are excluded. And remember I said earlier that the whole faith-works contrast has is, is, is been understood by Wright and others in the New Perspective to be all about the proper definition of God's people. Can you, as a Gentile, be a member of God's people? Well, that's clearly important. And it's clearly an important application of the fact that Nobody can be saved by the works of the law, as we'll see in a moment, and they all need to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But to limit righteousness to that particular issue, who's a member of God's people and who's not, is, I think, to um, unduly restrict what righteousness is all about. So what confuses the issue? Why... Why is it, I mean, why is it so confusing? Why do people have so many different and varied opinions on it? Well, let me suggest a couple of things that, that I think confuses the issue and, and try to bring a little clarity, I hope, or maybe muddy the waters. I think these two things confuse the issue. One, there are examples where righteousness is a status that has been granted a status which is clearly not based on some moral quality. And I've seen indications from you that you're, you're thinking of those passages. You know, well, wait a minute. There are places where it's not our moral status, and there are examples. We'll need to talk about that. I think that gets to the extraordinary use of righteousness in the Christian life. And it is also true, and this is something that the New Perspective and people like Tom Wright helpfully remind us of, justification language often occurs in context in which the place of Gentiles and God's people is indeed in question. So, I mean, it is a big issue, and it's right to emphasize it. Perhaps it hasn't been emphasized enough. Let me respond to both of these things that confuse the issue um, in terms of the definition of righteousness. This is, again, from, is from Westerholm. Much more can be said, but this is worth chewing on. Paul clearly uses the chaos, righteousness, of acquitted sinners. 
those who extraordinarily enjoy the status that would ordinarily belong only to those who had themselves done what is righteous. But you have to lay the foundation first. You have to say that the ordinary use of righteousness is based on what you do or what you don't do. Then you say, well, wait a minute, there's this astounding fact in the gospel that people who haven't done the right thing are declared to be righteous. It's a legal status that's not based on what you've done, but it's astounding precisely because that's in contradiction to the way in which the word was ordinarily used. And it's important to get the first stage down before you move to the second stage. I'm not righteous. I haven't done the right things. I'm under condemnation by God. I have no hope. I'm unrighteous. And then to see God justifies you. God declares you to be righteous anyway. That's the good news of the gospel. It is thus true of God's, it is thus true of Paul's extraordinary usage to say that righteous and righteousness indicate the status enjoyed by believers as a result of a forensic declaration and that they carry no implications about the ethical conduct of the one said to be righteous or to receive righteousness. So I, I think actually what we have here is a confusion of categories. It is true that when we're Christians, we receive righteousness. A righteousness not based on what we ourselves have done. Uh, a righteousness which is not indicative of our own moral status. That's very, very true. But it's also extraordinary. It's, 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 it's based on the fact that Jesus died for us and as a result gave us that kind of righteous and legal status despite the fact that we haven't done it. But you have to recognize the first stage before you can recognize the extraordinary usage in the second stage. Now the words are being stretched. Now the language is being used in a strange way. And we can recognize the full strangeness of it based on the fact that we receive this righteousness despite the fact that we haven't done what we should have done. But if you, if you collapse the meaning of righteousness into a legal status without having it based in the first place on what you've done, I think you miss some of the, um, some of the amazing... Amazingness, is that a word? Some of, there it is now. Some of the amazingness, the wonder of the fact that those who are ungodly have been declared to be righteous and, it's, and God is doing it as a just judge. That's Romans 4, based on the death of Jesus Christ. Right. I, I think it's incredibly important to do what you're doing, which is to establish what righteousness ordinary to establish. It's not just a boundary, but a, a meaningful distinction in light of a holy creator who has made unity and declared his creation good and sent into the world. But I still think we can have, I mean, I still have a problem with the imputation idea. And I think that right can still, I mean, maybe not carry the day there, but because I think that one of the things that hampers the Lutherans and, you know, I think that's my own Baptist background and a lot of Protestants is this, this notion of, of going into court and then saying, you know, however wretched I am, God looks at me and just sees Jesus standing in front of me and I, I have this imputed righteousness. And for a lot of people, that's where Christianity begins and ends. And it doesn't bring in this idea of the suffering servant and the vocation of Christ. I think that if you, if you bring that vocational idea into it, then you see that there's an... I don't, I don't even know how to put it to bear with me, but you see this eschatological element of there that the way that God ultimately brings us the substance of righteousness is by working within us this vocation that Christ worked out in his life. So it's not just a simple matter of Christianity is there so I can avoid what I deserve. It's so that I actually 
will be embodied in the way that Christ embodied his vocation. So I think you have to, I mean, and, and I think the imputation, the standard way of looking at imputation, ham, you know, hampers that. Well, this is, this is where, uh, I'm not sure I would go as far as you've gone, but I would, I would certainly say that I think Tom Wright has a point when he says the main category is not imputation, it's incorporation. And, you know, last, last, week, last week I pretty much agreed with Wright on all these points, that righteousness of God is not something that, that in Paul is conveyed to someone else. The righteousness of God is his own covenant faithfulness. So I think that probably the Reformed tradition has overplayed the category of imputation. It's, it's not so much something being conveyed to us as, as we are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, what is true of him becomes true of us. He's been restored. He's received the blessing. That, true, that too will become true of us. But in the meantime, his whole pattern of life, and I think this is what you're talking about, that movement from suffering to uh, glory, from humiliation to exaltation, becomes true of us as well. Uh, because in a sense, that's a deeper good than simply following love. I mean, we can't have a legalistic faith. An imputation and just, you know, zeroing in on it just gives it that ring. I mean, I, I'm not sure why. I mean, I can see Wright's use of the law court metaphor because it's a, a way of understanding what's going on, but... There has to, I mean, I don't know. We have to bring in this. Let me finish making these points. Then we can, Glenn, do you mind if we uh, reserve discussion for just a few minutes so I can sort of round off where I'm heading with this? Um, justification often occurs in context in which the place of Gentiles and God's people is in question. Absolutely true. Um, and Westerholm says um, in his book again, once Paul has established that sinners including David, whose circumcision and Jewishness were not in question. And this is in Romans 4, where he talks about David being justified by faith. Once Paul has established that sinners like David can be justified or declared righteous, by faith apart from works, that is, apart from the moral behavior on which a judgment would normally be based, he raises the question whether this extraordinary blessedness can apply to non-Jews who remain uncircumcised, as well as the Jews. In other words, he first of all establishes that even the Jews need to have a justification not based on their own doing, or lack of doing, not based on their own righteousness. And once he establishes that even Jews like David need that kind of justification apart from their works, then he goes on to make the point that Gentiles are received on precisely the same basis, and there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in covenant membership. But righteousness is not fundamentally about the lack of a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It's fundamentally about people who haven't done what they should have done being treated as if they had. And then you find that Jews and Gentiles, well, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. And um, all, all are justified and the walls have come down because the law, in fact, didn't give the Jews an advantage over the Gentiles. It simply increased their condemnation, increased their unrighteousness. They did more things wrong as a result of the law, not, not the opposite. All right, let's summarize this. Tom Wright's definition of the righteousness word group is unduly restrictive, both in its too strict placement of words like justification and righteousness in a covenantal, exclusively covenantal context, and in its limiting of the meaning to a legal status without due regard for the ordinary meaning of righteousness. That's just summing up what we've said. And then this is my summary of 
of what I think, how righteousness works in Paul, based again on Westerholm's insights. Righteousness is something God demands of all human beings. It is ordinarily attained by doing the good and avoiding the evil, and yet is ultimately only available to those who by faith in the servant Messiah receive righteousness apart from works as a gift. And that, and that does justice to each one of those points. Righteousness is something God demands of all human beings. It's bigger than the covenant, larger than the covenantal context. He demands it of everyone, including Jews, within the law. It is ordinarily attained by doing the good and avoiding the evil. That's righteousness having to do with moral, a particular moral action or lack thereof. And yet, there's the extraordinary use of righteousness. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the surprising thing that sort of reshapes our understanding of righteousness. Ultimately, righteousness is only available to those who by faith in the servant Messiah receive righteousness in a way that would have been unimaginable, apart from your works. How can you conceive of that? A righteousness apart from your works. Righteousness is based on your works, and yet not in the gospel. That's the good news, part of the good news. We receive righteousness apart from works as a gift. Um, would you put a, uh, a, an eschatological clause in there? I mean, in your definition, in that righteousness. I mean, it's not just about the behavior now. It's, a, it, it's sacramental writer. It's an indicator, a sign of, of, of the remaking of human beings. I mean, would you... Yeah, that's a good point. I'm, I'm about... To, well, let me tell you where we... Well, that's okay. What we're doing here is we're doing the um, righteousness side, and then I'm going to do the eschatology side. Actually, you'll be glad to know this is a lot shorter on this side. But, um, I'm, see, he's, he, he defines justification in terms of covenant and election, and I've sort of dealt with that. And then he defines it in terms of eschatology, and I'm going to have a comment or two on the eschatology side. And, again, you'll be real happy to know that I'm, I'm, I'm almost dumb. Because I know this is a lot of information, but I don't know any simpler way to do this. To sum up, Wright perceives more clearly than most how the cross and resurrection um, result in a redefinition of monotheism, election, and eschatology. That's that chart we've been looking at for the past four weeks. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. And he sees those redefinitions. In my view, he fails to appreciate the further redefinition of righteousness that comes as a result of the Christ event. Because of the death of Christ, righteousness language is now used in an extraordinary way the ungodly have been justified. And so I, I think he, he, he sort of flattens out the use of righteousness language too much and fails to see the way in which even righteousness language has been redefined. Which leads us to our final point. Okay, we've, we've discussed the, the blue side over there. And now I just want to have a brief comment on the um, eschatology side. And again, this is my counterpoint. Remember on the eschatology side, he was saying that future justification may be anticipated in the present by a badge of covenant membership, whether works or faith. So it's pointing forward to this final judgment, basically. But there's a lot of continuity. I mean, essentially, the only difference in justification in terms of eschatology is that Jews thought that the the mark of future vindication was works of the law, and Christians thought that it was faith. And so it was very 
a very, very analogous sort of thing. They just disagreed on what that mark of covenant membership would be or that mark of future vindication, eschatological vindication would be. Wright's own redefinition of eschatology includes the insight that what was to have happened at the end of time has now come to pass in the middle of time. This goes back to the first week. Remember, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus means that, in some sense, the final judgment's already occurred. That, um, the, well, the resurrection has begun. Something that was supposed to happen at the very end, resurrection, restoration, new creation, all of that's already begun in Jesus, right? So something that was supposed to happen at the end has already begun in the middle of time, and so we're sort of waiting for the, for, for the, um, the rest of the harvest to follow. The first fruits has already come. The rest of the harvest is going to follow. And Wright makes that point very strongly. Yet, his definition of present justification makes it a conventional anticipation of final judgment whether for pre-Christian Jews by the works of the Torah or for Christians by faith in the Messiah. In other words, it doesn't really seem to take into account that that final judgment has already happened in Christ because it's conceived so, almost solely on, the, on, on analogy with the Jews. The Jews thought you could be justified by works of the law, and that simply means that your badge of covenant membership is circumcision and Sabbath and food laws. And the Christians said it was by faith in Jesus Christ and I don't think that really does justice to what has actually come to pass. And this is, you know, based on Tom Wright's own, own um, insight, which is this. And, and, and listen carefully to this. If God's eschatological purposes have been fulfilled in Christ, our justification is not simply anticipation. It is participation in an actual eschatological event. This could not have been true of the Jews. When the Jews talked about, assuming for the moment, which I don't accept, assuming for the moment that they, they actually believe themselves to be justified by works in a way that anticipated the final judgment, um, even assuming that that's true, that can't be a good model for the Christian way of understanding it because we believe that the final judgment's already begun in Christ. So it's not just an anticipation of something that's going to happen in the future. It is a participation in the Christ event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually happened for us. We have been justified. Not only we will be justified, but we have been justified. We have been declared to be righteous already in the past in a way that will be certainly um, confirmed in the future. Again, Wright's own redefinition of eschatology leads to a necessary redefinition of righteousness language. A redefinition in this case more for those in the first century than those for those in the Reformation and after. This is where I think that um, it was the Jews in the first century who had to get used to to this new use of righteousness language. Because um, this righteousness language now is being used in an extraordinary way. What you're being declared righteous despite the fact that you haven't done something? Uh, wait a minute, you're being declared righteous as, as if the final judgment has already happened, which it has in Christ for you, as if it were something in the past? You mean it's not just future, it's also past? You mean it's not based on what you've done, it's based on what someone else has done? Those are redefinitions for the first century, and I think that Tom Wright sometimes tends to sort of flatten out things and see too many analogies between the Jewish way of thinking before Christ and the Christian way of thinking after Christ. I think there's a lot more discontinuity there. 
and that actually the Reformation in this case has a better understanding, that righteousness is about what you do and justification is about something that's already happened in the past as well as about something that's happened in the future. Um, that God has already declared his eschatological verdict on your salvation, not just um, declared you to be a member of God's people very much like the Jews did with respect to works of the law. Okay, um, I don't know if that's clear on, on eschatology or not. I guess what I'm trying to do is sort of um, give due weight to the fact that the judgment of God has already happened in the end times. Isn't it true, though, that his very, his very judgment of your eschatology is what, I mean, before you actually do it, is what enables you to fulfill it? I mean, you see, say it again. So his very, his declaration, his, yeah. your justification is what enables you to go and do the good works that the fruits of the Spirit that, are, that, that bring about the world that he's going to have. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's true that justification invariably leads to that, on, that, that sort of transformation. But I, th- I think, see, see, Tom Wright agrees that justification is a declaration. It's not something that's happening within you. It's a declaration. And I, and I would want to emphasize the declarative aspect of justification, too. It's, it's actually separate from the transformative process that happens within you. Where I differ from Tom Wright is not on seeing justification as declarative. We both see it that way, not as not as basically a part of sanctification, to use the traditional language. Where I differ is the definition of righteousness. It is declarative, but it's a declaration that you have done what you should have done, when in fact you haven't. Yes, but the re- yeah, but 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 you're doing it as different from justification. It's, it's it's equally necessary, but I would understand it as part of the justification language. And there's a notional distinction between the two, in other words. And at this point, I tell you what, let's do. Let me do this. Let me just quickly summarize my appreciation for Tom Wright, my difference with him. Then I'm going to stop and let the guys who um, need to leave leave, and then we'll um, take questions as long as you want as you want as long as you want to ask them, and as long as I can stand up. Okay. I want to make very clear here at the end that I consider Tom Wright to be a huge gift to the church. And the reason I spent three weeks getting, four weeks, getting to this point is because I wanted to show you all the deep riches and treasures that can come from studying someone like Tom Wright. He has incredible insight into Paul, incredible insight into biblical theology. He's worth reading. He should be read. Uh, His whole understanding of the narrative substructure of Paul's theology. The Creator God chose Israel to be a blessing to the world. The way in which that's redefined in rich ways, and especially the way in which it's redefined in terms of monotheism. Jesus Christ now being understood to be um, part of the Godhead, to be the very embodiment of God working in the world. Incredibly rich. His understanding of the Gospel is very rich as well. So please, um, even despite my own disagreement with him, I hope that you won't be discouraged to start, you'll never catch up and read everything he's written because, like I said, he writes faster than you can read. But you can start, and he's worth reading, and I hope you will read him. I, I have to express though, my reservations in this last lecture on his restricting righteousness of God, well, especially justification, to um, his particular understanding of covenant membership and eschatology. And I think that in that case, his redefinition actually doesn't go far enough, that there needs to be even more of a redefinition um, from the way Jews understood righteousness and justification up here, then in light of the Damascus Road encounter with the crucified and resurrected Lord, a redefinition not only of monotheism, election, and eschatology, 
but indeed of righteousness as well. So, on that note, let me um, officially stop and thank you for your time and thank all of you for coming for four weeks. You have done, you've done it. You've sat through six hours, which we talked about four weeks ago, six hours of talking about Tom Wright and justification and Paul. Um, but uh, if you need to leave, feel free to go, but um, I'll take questions for a bit now. Um, this is where you get to say what you've all been dying to say all this time. Okay. I want to go back to the slide you had. What is, which is the controlling story? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Which is the controlling story? Sure. Um, it seems like the definition of justification follows from which is the controlling story. If... Israel's replacement for Adam. If Christ is seen as fulfilling Israel's vocation, if Christ is seen as solving the problem of Israel's disobedience, then justification becomes the vindic- how shall Israel be vindicated? How can God get back to his covenant faithfulness answered through Christ? Oh, I think I think it is, and that's why along the way I've had reservations about uh, I've wanted to retain covenant of works. That that that's not Pauline language, and yet it seems to me that 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 the blessings that were to come to Israel were based on what they did or what they didn't do on their covenant righteousness, that particular subset of righteousness which would be covenant righteousness, and that one of the things that Christ does is bring in the blessings. Not through obedience to the law. I, I agree with Tom Wright on that. It can't be so narrowly construed. It is through his fulfillment of the servant's task, the suffering servant's task. I think he thoroughly demonstrates that. But through his obedience defined in that way, it, it, his obedience is the answer in uh, his righteousness is the answer to Israel's unrighteousness and disobedience. And that, and that covenant of works gets at something there. That Israel didn't do what it was supposed to do. Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do. Christ did what he was supposed to do, even if you can see that differently. Even if you say that there's not this complete symmetry between what they were supposed to do, especially Adam, um, and what Christ was supposed to do, even if there's not this complete symmetry, the fact of the matter is, he was obedient, Israel. He was obedient, Adam. And so, yeah, so, I, so what I would want to do is say yes, yes, yes to so much of Tom Wright and then try to say, but the covenant of works language is getting at an important truth because it's recognizing that righteousness is dependent on doing and that's part of what Christ answers. Not just the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, but the sin problem, which is, and, and Tom Wright would admit there was a sin problem, but that's, that's pointed to by the righteousness language. So yeah, you're working along the same lines I'm trying to work in and say, how do we put these things together? Because I think the two W's, Wright and Westerholm, read them together. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of a way that Wright may answer questions on Westerholm's criticisms. And, okay. and one of the ways it seems that he could would be to say that there's a symmetry between sin and justification in that um, the law is not an exhaustive description of the way that we can sin or that we sin. The right. law rather is, the law rather provides this kind of redemptive vehicle through which God works to teach about sin and through which because of Jesus he deals with sin. But and so within the law, um, sin takes on this intensified length. It takes on a, a sort of intensified meaning. And justification would be the same way that within within God's people 
um, for redemptive purposes, righteousness, justification, become, takes on this in, in, intensified meaning. It's not that righteousness is restricted to God's people, but even the righteousness that is outside God's people it is, is a righteousness that anticipates um, what we do, what we righteously do, whether inside or outside God's people, is really just a shadow of what we should be doing and what we will be doing as, as, glor- as, as glorified. So, so to build on what Tom Wright says, what I would say is that the law simply demonstrates, and I think this is really the point of Romans 1 through 3, is the law demonstrates that no one is righteous. The Jews who have the law are not righteous. The Gentiles who don't have the law are not righteous. So, so the Jews don't have any, any particular special privilege in that sense because they're all, everyone is unrighteous whether they have the law or not. And in fact, the Jews are even worse off. And I, I think Tom Wright is completely right on this. The Jews are even worse off because the law actually heaps up sin on them. They're actually under more condemnation rather than less. And so you have this ironic, dark purpose of the law which ends up making them more condemned and more sinful as a result. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way that I would work it out. I would just say that it's, it's, it's showing the condemnation, the unrighteousness of all as, as sort of summarized, sort of representative, represented in Israel's experience. Yeah. What I'm wondering is, is Westerland's criticism in that it, it retains a declarative, trying to retain a declarative nature to um, justification well, Wright does that too, you know. Yeah, Wright does that as well. Yeah. But retaining the declarative, um, the declarative nature to righteous to justification, but saying that righteousness is about what we do. Yes. It seems to make righteousness just a uh, a negative, but like an, a quality that's absent. It doesn't. It, well, how, how, how is doing the right or doing the good a negative quality? I mean, it's just positive. I mean, it's, it involves avoiding the evil, but I mean, it's, it's, you could sum it up as just doing the good. That would be a, wouldn't that be a positive? Doing what you're supposed to do. We're, we, we we're born into a world not of our own making. And we, so certain, certain responsibilities are inherent in our position in the world. This is kind of like natural theology to some extent. And so righteousness is simply doing what you're supposed to do as a creature. Yeah, that, well, yeah, that, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, but what I'm wondering is if, is, is if the way that we understand righteousness is not just what we should be, the way that we understand righteousness is not just what we should be doing, haven't done, under our declared to have done anyway, but also the way that, one of the ways that Western woman writes and makes Together is including this ethical and this righteousness also becomes a description of what we will do. So if it's declarative in that we haven't done it and get declared it anyway, but it's also moral in that the declaration of it promises our yes. future fulfillment of it in like new yes. ways. Yeah. Well, that, I think you want to say, then we'll go back to Glenn. Well, I think that that's one of the things that I was trying to say earlier. There has to be, Christianity has to have this eschatological tension and element in it because it, it, it can't simply be the case that, um, I mean, you can understand justification as a, a provisional thing, with, whether it's right view of it being a badge of membership or whatever. But the, right, the, righteousness, the righteousness issue is, is, in fact, what looking back in God's final judgment, we will have done. Again, not because of I've generated our own sinful nature and our own works, but because we are engrafted into that vocation that Christ did. 
So we're, we're part of the process. So it's not just, it doesn't stop with, okay, God, God decided I want to get a certain number of people and say, I'm going to put Christ in their place, and then that's, the, that's it. But I, while I agree with what you're saying, I'm not, I'm not entirely um, convinced that righteousness or justification language speaks to that issue. Well, I mean, I completely agree that you can't be a Christian unless there's a transformation beginning on the outs- inside that will be completed on the outside. That, that, that It's even called glorification. But, but whether justification refers to that, that the whole process is entirely different. Usually sanctification language is used or whatever, but, but I mean, I, I think that's true, but justification, I think, is, de- is, is declarative. I don't think it's... In other words, I don't think that it's something that's actually... So when we say justification and righteousness, I think it's referring to something which we have by virtue of our incorporation in Christ, despite the fact that we haven't done it, without denying for a moment that if, if we don't have increasing righteousness in our life over time, we're not Christians. I mean, that, 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 that transformation has to be going on. I just wouldn't call that justification. And I don't think Paul does. Yeah. But that righteousness is the ordinary usage, not the not the extraordinary. But God's but God's view from the God's God view of us seeing us as righteous doesn't just include us. Uh, it, it, it is us as um, the saints who have this eschatological destiny, who are part of Christ's vocation, who are our lives are going to be a living sacrifice as His life was, and we are we have to pour ourselves out in worship and spirit and truth, and all of that is part. Is it, it, also part of. I mean, the justification, fine, but God seeing us as righteous is not simply seeing Christ in front of us. That is not simply it. Okay. I just want to contribute John Piper's saving faith is sanctifying faith. But the reformers, the reformers always would have agreed with that that, that, that you're, you're, you're justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. But, but I think N.T. Wright and anybody who gets at our tendency well, just because you should make a separation doesn't mean you should make a distinction, and I think that's and I think that's the importance here. I mean, some people make a distinction and a separation, and they should never be separated, but I think they should be distinguished. Glenn, I'm sorry, we've the value of the distinction is, and especially in light of, of Romans six, okay. about the one that was that you used earlier on, which is that, that whole baptismal chapter that has to do with our engrafting into Christ. There's a, there's a declaration of righteousness that's there that sort of assumes Paul is what come out and say it. But there's also an eschatological tension. The eschatology's been fulfilled in Christ. It hasn't been fulfilled in me yet. And he makes that point that uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. And in fact, in this passage, we showed a while ago, if, uh, what was the, the phrase was, we have become slaves to righteousness. That's an astonishing phrase. And it's, and it's not a sh- it's not a shadow righteousness or a shadow goodness. I mean, it's a it's a right. That's the ordinary use of righteousness. We do what we ought to do. But we become slaves to that yeah. through our engrafting into Christ. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, I, I, I wonder what the value of separating those out really is, and what what, what do we really get from that? Separating out justification as uh, as a mere declaration from uh, our enslavement to the righteousness of God. I mean, Paul's astonished that people were sinning. Well, it's just doing justice to Paul. It's just... How can you do that? 
Well, it's doing justice to Pauline language. That on the one hand, you're, you're a slave to righteousness, which means that you are doing more and more good things, obviously. But also that Paul could say in Romans 4, God is the one who justifies the ungodly. So to do, justi- to do justice to that language, it's, it's, it's declarative. And, we're, and he's not an unjust judge. That's an extraordinary use of, of, of justification. You know, so once you become a Christian, you're justified. There's this extraordinary usage based on your incorporation into Christ, despite the fact that you haven't done what you're supposed to have done. And, and, and never will, in some sense, ever do fully what you're supposed to do. So there's an ongoing hope that God will continue to justify you, continue to declare you righteous, despite the fact that you haven't done the good that you should have done, and you haven't avoided the evil that you should have avoided um, as much as you should have, without denying, you know, increasing growth there. So, I mean, I think, that's the, I think that's the value of it, is recognizing, well, of course, there's an increasing righteousness in our lives, but there's also a need to recognize that God justifies the ungodly. Um, that's, ex- that's extraordinary. And yeah, I guess the part that bothered me was, the, uh, what you, I don't remember whether, I think it might have been uh, not uh, uh, right, but the other fellow, Western Home, yeah, referred to, to David's justification in spite of his evil actions. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I, I mean, it almost, it, it, in fact, it, it seems to me to be phrased that while he continues in sin, he's justified. I don't think that's... Well, well, just David, David couldn't be declared righteous solely on the basis of his actions, one thing, the Bathsheba, for example, and, and others. So, so if he was... Well, I understand that. Yeah, okay. But, but uh, the, just what, what bothered me was the notion of uh, that, it, that it was done in spite of that. Uh, but, I mean, isn't that, isn't that the wonder that we are declared righteous in spite of our ungodliness? The fact that we've done wicked deeds? And I'm not at all denying the fact yeah. that there's a growth in righteousness. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. I'm really assuming that. I'm just saying that there's a truth that needs to be preserved here on the extraordinary use of justification language. I think it's, I think it's the declaration of the thing that, that, that concerns me. It's, it's, it's the declaration that, and, that, and that metaphor, that language is separated from uh, Paul's notion of engrafting uh, into Christ. And as long as the engrafting is there, the justification, that really makes a lot of sense. When, but when we're not talking about engrafting, then it seems kind of flat. Yeah. And simply deflated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ben, Bill, what would you do with the passages then um, that do speak of justification by works? Jesus, Paul, and... Um, James. Now, that might be an unfair question because I know you don't have time to execute all those passages, but just in general, have you thought through a framework for thinking of that given the way that you argue for a redefinition in an extraordinary sense? Well, well, James says that you're justified by works as well as faith. Um, not sure you could understand that in terms of covenant membership or, or, or so forth. I mean, it doesn't really work there. So the only thing I can take James to be saying in different language than Paul would use is that um, you're justified by a faith that works, right. which I take which I take Paul to be to, to be saying as well, and so he's he's opposing a misunderstanding of faith that, that faith is a faith that works is never separated from from those works. But I mean that's the best I can do with James. Are you thinking of other passages in, in Paul or oh, Romans two? You're probably thinking of. But I think, but I think that's part of. See, this is where I disagree with Wright. I don't think that in Romans two he's anticipating um, his thought later on. 
symphonically. I think he, he's laying the basis for the rest of Romans and by, by establishing the fact that just because you're a Jew, you don't have an advantage over the Gentiles with respect to righteousness. If, if anything, you have a disadvantage. That, that all are righteous. What he says in Romans 3, that there is no one who is righteous. And so he establishes that by saying that the, 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 um, the Jews have their standard, which is the law. The, even the Gentiles have their standard, which is written on their hearts. And both fail miserably to do what they're supposed to be doing. So then you, get to Rome, then you can get to Romans 4 and so forth, which then talks about that we have a declaration of righteousness apart from works. So you have basically Romans 1 through 3 working on an ordinary definition of righteousness and then a transition to an extraordinary definition of righteousness you know, in Romans 4 and following. That's, that's kind of standard, a standard understanding of Romans, but I, I think it works. And um, I think Westerholm does a good job of explaining those passages um, as well. So... Yeah, but thank you. That's a, that's, that's a very important question to answer. Yes. Uh, we'll, st- we'll stop in four minutes. I'll stop at nine. So we'll just take as many questions as we can and stop in four minutes. So you'll know how, what you're in for here. You established that the righteousness refers to sort of a personal accountability. And then, uh, what about sort of that uh, in Romans 3, the righteousness of God, when Wright translates that as God's covenant justice? I still think that's better translation in that sense. Yeah, and and I don't mind in certain passages for righteousness of God to be translated that way because, I mean, as I admitted last week, I think righteousness of God is used that way all the time in Isaiah. Now, that being said, I think there are other places where the righteousness of God is broader than His covenant faithfulness. Uh, The righteousness of God in other passages has to do with His... the fact that He's the judge of the whole world, not just the judge of Israel. Even Israel is representing the whole world. So I would say that righteousness of God, too, needs to be understood in creation categories, not just covenantal categories. But there are places where it's used more restrictively, and you simply judge that by the context. So I've got a both-and approach there. There are places where I'm sure it's covenantal faithfulness. Romans 3 would be a good example of that. But there are other places um, in the Old Testament where it has to do with the fact that he's the judge of the whole world, and he's um, holding people accountable for what they do or what they don't do. And his righteousness is is rewarding those who do the right and punishing those who do the wrong. So, yeah, that's a very The reason he has written the big Paul book is because he's got to know that they're out there. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. That guy, he writes so fast, it's not even funny. Let me take one from uh, Brett here. Oh, are you just waving? Okay, all right. Uh, one more question. Real quickly, again, I think the... Uh, um, the Counterposing Christ to Adam in terms of Adam didn't do what he was supposed to do, and Christ did do what he was supposed to do. Very useful. I think. I think we do have to be careful with saying uh, um, Israel was there to kind of also show that they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Um, to talk about well, Israel failed at it, but Christ succeeded. Israel, in some sense, their what they were chosen to do was to be the seed of Christ, or to be the context for Christ to come. And in that sense, um, it, it, I think it's better to see it as their vocation not being the same as what Adam's vocation did. But they also, I mean, this is where I'm sort of uneasy about the covenant works in the same way it's understood in the Adam context. Their vocation was to uh, be this people who were given the law. The context is then set for the suffering servant to take, to fulfill his vocation. And then and then bringing that forward to us, this is why I think it's so so important to have, um, to have both, you know, maybe the declaratory idea of being justified that this engrafting vocations because that is what gives meaning. I think one of the things that I struggled with for so long 
was just this notion of what's the meaning in this life of being a Christian if it is simply one of having some substance imputed to me that I know doesn't have anything to do with me. And in fact, you know, it's, like my dad always said, well, you know, I was, I was raised <laughs> to be scared of going to hell. That's why I got saved or whatever. And, and to me, there's just no, that's but, not mean, but seeing it in Israel terms gives it a sort of meaning, you know. Yeah. And justification is not all of Paul, and it's not all of salvation. I mean, you know, because that's that's just at the very at the very least, it's the starting point. But transformation is. Um, I mean, we're looking forward, after all, to a comprehensive transformation, right? Resurrection, resurrection of our bodies. And that transformation begins on the inside. So to understand the Christian life apart from ever increasing transformation and conformity to the image of Christ is a misunderstanding. So I would completely agree with that. Even while I would say. Let's give justification language its due and its proper distinct, distinctiveness, even while we don't do a sum and, and become antinomian in that sense. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, you've been a great, great group.